are listening to Giant Size, the show that believes that comics are for everybody, and that is why we provide reading recommendations and jumping on points for characters, creators, stories worth reading that you may or may not have heard about. This particular episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the integral role of color in comics, something that you don't hear much about on comics podcasts and that we think is a severely under-discussed topic, in particular uh, when it comes to comics podcasts and the comic industry in general. To help discuss the magic of the rainbow with me is the Hogan to my Fandral. You could even say the Hogan to my Macho Man. And to use a wrestling analogy, John Golson, how are you, sir? Let me tell you something, Moises. I am going to Jupiter and Saturn, Saturn and Jupiter. I can't keep doing that without, like, breaking my voice apart. Nope, nope, let's save that voice. Uh, let's save that voice, John, because we got a show to do. And this episode of the show, we've been we've been juggling, figuring out, wanting to frame and um, bolster this episode the, the best that we could, uh, celebrating the amazing coloring work, in particular, of Elizabeth Breitweiser, who it is a crying shame is not nominated for an Eisner this year for her work on various Ed Brubaker written books. Um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to hear from one of her collaborators, Steve Epting, the artist on Velvet, uh, who absolutely considers her one of the best colorists he has ever worked with and one of the best colorists in the comics industry. We will hear from Elizabeth Breitweiser. We'll get a little bit of a primer on the magic of the coloring world. And, uh, and we've got, we've got the one and only Walt Simonson to talk about the digital recoloring of his Thor run to close us out for this very special multicolored, I mean, more more colors than the human eye can see uh, are contained in this episode. John, would you say that's fair to say? Mm-hmm. Coloring, John. Why is this so important to us? Why Why should we care about coloring? Isn't it just a paint bucket tool in MS Paint? Well, colors were first invented by uh, God, to make sure that we didn't eat poisonous berries. Uh, <laughs> John, uh, comic book coloring is something that you, you got a little, uh, can, can we say that you got a, a little, a little heated, a little, a little hot about it on Twitter a little while back. I got a little viral boost. They got a little, little signal boost from IO nine because, uh, I have, I have some opinions about digital recoloring specifically. Um, in regards to uh, the collaborators and an artist's place in the collaboration that that we'll get into a little bit later in the show. Um, and I can clarify as well some of the points that were kind of taken from my tweets in that in that io9 piece. Um, but you know what? Hey, when io9 uh, latches onto some of your tweets, you you uh, gain some followers. So hopefully there'll be some people interested in, in listening to that uh, that conversation when it comes later in the show. Um, coloring has really changed quite a bit and, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly something now that, uh, because of the, the digital coloring and, and how it's, it's not, it's not a gimmick anymore. It's not anything special anymore. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Marvel started doing the, uh, the image style digital coloring and how, how big of a deal that was. Um, you know, where Steve Olaf's earliest works, Ollie Optics, like the, uh, I think the first time I noticed Steve Olaf's digital work was, uh, and it may have existed before then, but the first time I really looked at it and went, whoa, this is different, was that 1989 Batman movie adaptation. There's something that is very, dist- once you have seen the two side by side, the like printed on newspaper quality paper with maybe, I don't know. 
30 colors uh, in, in the separations, you know, old school version of coloring versus the new school version of coloring. It, it's it's something that, that will stand out to you for all time. And John, this didn't come to me until we started talking about this, but I'm 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 throwing out our preordained order of things because uh, I actually had a conversation with Neil Adams about this at Fan Expo Dallas. Mm-hmm. And I feel like perhaps we should start with Neil Adams. Does that sound uh, amenable to you? Are you willing to listen to Neil Adams talk about color and uh, changing the way that uh, the DC in particular dealt with it? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring up Neil Adams with this color conversation because I noticed uh, when I picked up the greatest Batman Superman stories ever told that the only story in it that had been altered from its original version that I could tell was the Neil Adams story, which had been completely, for some reason in that collection, it's been completely recolored. Everything else is, you know, flat colors in that in in that original style, and his, you know, his story was probably from the seventies but had completely modern coloring, which I found interesting and wondered if he had done that himself or, or overseen or required that that be uh, the case in that book. John, have I told you lately that I love you? <laughs> no, what did I do now? Uh, that's the perfect cue into exactly uh, the answer that you're going to get out of this uh, clip of my conversation with Neil Adams at his spotlight panel at Fan Expo Dallas 2015. We'll be back with Elizabeth Brightweiser, Steve Epting, and Walt Simonson. Enjoy, everybody. One of the things that I, I've spoken recently with uh, with Walt Simonson about, with Val Merrick about, is the digital recoloring, remastering of work that uh, that in the day was, uh, we'll say, maybe not printed on the best of paper with the best of inks. Um, we call it toilet paper. This, this, this and is by exactly. a printing process that was popular at the in the day of Ben Franklin. So how, how do you feel about this process? Is this something that you've been involved with, the remastering of some of your work directly, or, or not as much? Oh, I, the true art of the old comic book form of sloppy separations and terrible printing on toilet paper is something we should get behind and, and defend and make the... The, and and make sure that nobody destroys it with this new computer technology and really good paper and fantastically wonderful printing. Oh, Neil, Neil, really, who honestly, who wants to see the art that was covered up by bad color separation jobs and uh, and, and rush to print? Collectors, collectors want to see it. They will go through the bins and they will pull the comic books out and they will say this is. And you know what I say? I say good for the collectors. They should do that. But you know, if I have a, my, my run of Batman comic books and we're going to reproduce them for a new audience and for this audience and for an old audience, I would rather reseparate them and I would rather make them modern so that people actually read them and not the collectors go, oh, I don't see the dust flecks on this. I, uh, I think it's important for those collectors to go through the bins and to get the comic books that they, they loved when they were younger in good condition and spend their $400 per copy <laughs> and then come over to my table and have me sign it for $30. Just saying, I'm just saying, just saying, if you want to do that, that's okay. But if you want to see reprints, the reprints actually ought to be suitable to read for children and for people today. I think my stuff ha is, uh, what's the word, timeless to a certain extent. And I think that's I would one agree. of the reasons. We would agree, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And, and for that reason, they keep on reprinting it and reprinting it and reprinting it at a higher and higher price. There was a day that uh, I remember I was being asked, do you think that this, did you ever think that this would happen? They had just reprinted the Green Lantern Green Arrow series in a slip case and they sold it for $75. $75, and so they went out to the stores, and the stores, who didn't believe in that price point, lowered the price to $40 for about a day, and then when people came in and bought, bought them for $40, shot the price back up to $70, because they knew they were worth it. Now, DC Comics has decided to take all the Batman stories and do this omnibus volume, and I think they're gonna sell it for $100. Totally insane. You know, the comic book, my comic book started to sell for 15 cents. And now it's $100 to get a big reprint. And, that's, and, and you know, they'll sell a crap load of them because people love them, because they're, uh, to a certain extent, timeless. I didn't draw them for the day I did them. I have, Batman Odyssey was not written for today. Batman Odyssey was written for four years from now when they make a movie out of it. You know what I'm saying? And they will. How can you not do that? Batman blowing this guy's chest out? That's a movie. Batman Odyssey available in Neil Adams' booth while supplies last. That's right. Does it sound like I'm trying to sell you these books? Yes, I am. But come and buy more things. Anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I'm really behind this. Uh, the, you know, it's like when they came out, when this, first, when this issue first came up, it was like Steven Spielberg making Metropolis in color or Napoleon in color. And everybody went, no, don't ruin it. It was meant to be in black and white. No, it wasn't meant to be in black and white. That's all they could afford. If they could have made it in color, they'd make it in color. How many people are going out making black and white movies these days? Really? This is stupid. Oh, uh, and then there'll be one person in the audience who'll go, yes, but the, you know, the real true way. No, no, it's not true. All we had to reproduce with 30, at DC Comics, we had 32 colors. At Marvel, they had 64 colors. They had 100% red, 50% red, 25% red, 100% blue, 50% blue, 25% blue, and at DC, only 100% yellow. They didn't even have 50% yellow and then 25% yellow. So skin, okay, on Anglo-Saxons was pink because they didn't have any yellow to mix in, except the paper was so damn dirty, it didn't look pink. It looked, it looked like sort of fleshy. That's all we had, and that's all we dealt with. If you, if you knew anything about color production and you were in any other field, you'd say, how did you people work that way? 32 colors, that's nothing, nothing. Marvel, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> I'm at DC Comics, and I'm a little bitched out. Okay, because DC Comics has only 32 colors. They don't have 50% tone yellow and 25% tone yellow to mix in with the blue and the red and to make aquas and other browns in different colors. They had 32 colors. And I knew it was bull, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I went to Joe Kubert, who was then an editor, and I said, Joe, uh, you know we're working with 32 colors. He said, yeah, I know. I said, does Carmine know? Does the publisher know? I think he knows. So he goes into Carmine, Carmine Infantino, who was then the publisher at that time, not necessarily deserving of being a publisher. 
being a semi-literate, but just, <laughs> did I say that? I didn't, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't there, mean to say that. There's a certain way that corporate promotion works. I, yeah, it was one of him and five editors, so you pick him to be the publisher. No. So anyway, Carmite says, oh, that's, uh, it's cheaper uh, to do it to print uh, 32 colors. Marvel prints more expensive than DC Comics? They have double the amount of colors? I don't think so. So I talked to Joe again. I said, Joe, maybe you ought to go and talk to Jack Leibowitz, the president of the company, and find out whether or not he thinks it's good for DC Comics to have 32 colors while Marvel has 64 colors. So Joe goes in to see Jack Leibowitz, my puppet. <laughs> Go, Joe. He talks to Jack Leibowitz. Jack Leibowitz storms out of his office, eye back against the wall, past me, to Saul Harrison, head of production at DC Comics. Goes into, Jack, into Saul's office and says, Marvel has 64 colors and we have 32 colors. Damn you, what the hell is going on here? I cannot believe it. That cheap so-and-so Goodman at Marvel, he's paying more money for his color separations than I am. That will be the day. What the hell is going on, Saul? Uh, I, I, uh, do, uh, well, let me call and find out. Uh, just, just let me call. So he calls the separator in uh, Connecticut where the housewives are doing the separations with these old brushes and stuff and working part-time and doing the separations for all your comic books. Housewives did all that. It was housewives, part-time, part labor. Peace labor, they call it, in Connecticut. Gets on the phone, he says, so... Uh, so Joey, uh, how much, uh, look, uh, Marvel has uh, 64 colors. They have uh, tone yellow, 50% tone yellow, 25% tone yellow. Uh, how much more would it cost for us to get tone yellow? Setting up the conversation, how much more would it cost? Oh, 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 okay, the same, oh, okay. You sure? It just it only costs this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Bye, bye. Okay. They they can give us tone yellow. Damn it, Jack Leibowitz! You bet they'll give us the same color. You think he's paying more money than I am? I'll be damned if he's paying more money than I am. That day, that day, DC Comics got 64 colors, double the amount of colors they had the day before. Neil Adams, the man who brought the 64-color crayon. You've got to do things a little sneaky, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Just... John, now we should turn to uh, the true focus of this episode, the artist whose work we find uh, celebrated, praised, would you say, but not to the extent that either of us uh, thinks thinks really gives her her due in showing people what is really possible in in modern coloring would, would you say that 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 uh, series of of adjectives and verbs is is an accurate assessment yes what is it before we get into this and 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 part of this is is uh, is you talking to her and even bringing up some of this stuff what is it to you that that you find the most captivating about elizabeth brightweiser's work with color um i think she works really really well with uh with light and that's something that inkers have had to uh, carry 
the full load of for a very long time. Um, you know, for, for people who don't understand maybe what an inker's job is, is sort of kind of started as an assembly line job so that someone would draw in pencil and it would go on to someone to finish an ink while the penciler could then continue to work on more, more pencil pages. Um, but what inkers add is weight and depth and shadows and line and uh, you know, can really affect the uh, the form and can affect. They can really affect the overall composition as well, depending on uh, the weight of the page and the figures and the layout and and that sort of thing. Um, and for you know, because technology was so limited, colorists only had a, a certain palette, and and printing processes weren't the great, and paper quality wasn't the best. So really, an inker had to carry carry much of the load for. Uh, for the lighting or sort of the cinematography of a book. Now we're in an era where the colorist, you know, there's really a, a really strong movement to making sure that colorists have cover credit. And part of the reason is colorists are essentially working as, uh, you know, as as hand in hand. Yeah, and yeah. it's really it's really like you have your artist, which a lot of times now we've kind of seen. Um, the inking jobs sort of not not necessarily go away. I think at the big two, especially, you still see it. But I know a lot of the independents, you see it less and less because a lot of those artists are are doing the work themselves. You know, right? Well, there, there's the confluence, and inking. There's the confluence of generations where you talk to somebody like a friend of the show, friend of ours, Val Merrick, and he'll say, you know, a bad inker and a bad colorist can mutually ruin artwork in totally different ways if they're not paired with the right person whose process they understand and whose base art they understand and he said that you know uh, the the manual original artwork style of things had he all the time and wrist muscles in the world he would prefer to ink his stuff himself and work with a colorist that knows his work uh, who he likes and respects and can get along with. And a lot of times, especially the big two publishers, that luxury is just not something that you have offered to you. But that's something that has that has changed a bit, especially over the last few years, as uh, big name colorists, the people who can crank through a ton of work and who have good relationships with these artists. Some of them, both of them work digitally. Some of them, and one of the things that I, I like the most about Elizabeth Breitweiser's work and what for me, just in terms of her fundamental craft that sets her apart from other colorists, isn't that she is just, you know, a great graphic artist, you know, in and of herself. A lot of folks that do digital color work are like that. But she comes from a you know studio painting background she was an art teacher which we get into in the chat with her and I, I feel like the craft that is built into that lends a totally different sensibility to her uh, where as you will hear from Steve Epting in the middle of this uh, this chat with Elizabeth I've, I've cut it in uh, to part of the extended chat that we had with uh, with Betty at uh, at, at uh, was it fan days Dallas that they renamed it back in February mm-hmm. Um you're, you're going to hear praise from the artist working hand in hand with her where he is an original art old school guy who is doing the original art, passing along the, the, the digital scans to her. And for for him, if if he had his druthers, if he had his choice of anybody on the planet, uh, you know, he is just thrilled to bits to have his work colored by her. Um, and that's that's something that uh, that really goes to the heart personally of why I feel like. Um, you cannot understate the importance of that kind of symbiotic relationship. 
Yeah, they really have the ability to. Uh, they really have the ability to create uh, light and really paint the scene. I think, you know, I, 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 there's some like colorists that will take take a, their tools, their kind of digital tools, and maybe over render and kind of make everything sort of look bubbly and shiny, no matter if it's a metal object or human skin or a sofa in the room that's supposed to be corduroy, they'll all have the same texture and highlights. And then you have people that are using the digital tools, like you said, like a cinematographer, like a DP would, where it's very much about going in and choosing a palette that suits the overall mood and then making sure that the the that palette carries through in significant uh, and subtle ways. Um, the use of light being one of the things that I think Elizabeth, in particular, is is incredibly skilled at. Uh, you know, um, and and all of her stuff doesn't look the same as each other. Outcast does not look the same as the Fade Out. Does not look the same as Velvet. Does not look the same as Fatal. Yeah, and and it's stuff that she's doing concurrently often with the same collaborators at the very least the writer at brubaker um the the thing the thing for me that if i were to crystallize it down and not babble anymore uh, about about how captivating her work is and what it lends to it is when you've got a great artist doing the pencils and the inks or just the pencils that is one thing and the the greatest artists you know like uh, neil adams like Walt Simonson, both on this episode. There, there are those books that, no offense to the writer intended at all, and you'll see where I'm going in a moment, I can read those comics without reading the word bubbles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I find myself drifting away from wanting to read the script and just look at the visual storytelling that's on display. And it is more than icing on the cake. It is like the filling in the cake. It is, you know, special ingredients put into the cake, uh, to use a fractured food analogy that in particular, her work makes it look so cinematic that where other digital colorists are using kind of a painterly inspired look that you get, you know, in, in these limited edition screen prints that, that you and I and a bunch of other nerds are into that have a particular, you know, like like brushstroke kind of look to them, lighting effects, that kind of thing, uh-huh. where a lot of digital colorists do that kind of technique, and it's still life. Hers moves for me. It's got it's got the lighting, it's got the mood, and it also has that sense of kinetic energy to it. And that's that for me is what finds me going. You know what? I'm going to read this one through without actually reading the dialogue, and then go back through. And, and read it with, with Ed Brubaker's words on it. And I find myself enjoying it twice, not because, oh, I have to read it twice to be able to get it, but because I, I just want to enjoy it as a silent movie, and then I go back through and I turn the sound on. Yeah. Do, does that... Was, was that metaphor just too arty <laughs> for the show? No. Yeah, you leave that stuff over on your electric shadow thing. Oh. <laughs> Man, you say that you say that you know we're recording this the week that I'm putting one out with the voice of SpongeBob on it. Uh, High art, but actually, interestingly, we, you know, we talk about comic book stuff too. Should we go ahead and uh, and cut to uh, mostly you talking with Elizabeth Brightweiser? Yes, please. Let's we, hear me. We'll, we'll, we'll sp- <laughs> and we, we've seasoned it with a sousson of uh, of Steve Epting, and uh, then we'll be back and close things out with the truly one and only Mr. Walt Simonson. 
So, John, just go for it. I, okay. I, I had a chance to talk to Elizabeth Breitweiser, but you didn't, you know, and I, I feel I feel terrible about that. <laughs> well, I think short of colorists, uh, writers are the only people whose credits in the book, when you see what it, what, well, what the credit is, you know right away what they do. So if I see a writer, I know that's a writer. If I see colorists, that's colorists. People have more questions about what an editor does or what an inker does. But I think even when people think of a colorist, I think that it's much more, um, I think it's a much more simplistic thought about what that process is than what the reality actually is. And especially when I sit here and I look at something like Outcast, and I talked to you a little bit about this yesterday with, with Velvet, when I look at something like Outcast, and I see, for instance, just a panel like like this, where we see the panel of the character sitting on a mattress on the floor, but we see the light coming in through the window, and it's hitting their back, and that's not anything that the, the penciler did, that's not anything that the inker did, that, that effect and everything in that panel is, is all due to the colorist. Yeah, well, actually, um, Outcast is a rare instance where uh, Paul, that Paul Azaceta, um, he actually gives me guidelines for that. So this is like a rare case where he'll, he actually draws, he kind of illustrates in value. In value, values is like a range of grayscale. So he actually kind of draws in grayscale. And so he gives me guidelines for some of these. So this is actually a rare instance where the artist is more involved in the cuts of light. Uh, but you're right, on most books, that is totally up to the colorist. Just to, you look at the, the artist, their line art, and uh, you follow, you know, the where they've laid in the shadows. And uh, you, you're totally responsible for the highlights and the rendering. Uh, Paul does work in like blocks of light though so that's a little bit different on outcast okay. but um you're right on most comic books it is totally up to the colorist when you're coming on board a project for the first time uh do you have to present sort of like a i mean are you presenting a mood board or anything like that in regards to like what the palettes are and things or the approach you know i've i'm i guess i've been pretty lucky where the the artists that i've worked with and the writers just trust me to do but I mean the first thing I do is read through the script and that's my mood board in a way that tells me or should tell me what time of day you know what's going on so if it's supposed to be scary or happy or you know whatever it tells me I, could, I get an idea of the emotion I'm trying I need to get across um, but usually the first few issues are more involved so like with Outcast I, the first uh, issue I really work back and forth with Paul and Rob coming up with a look we wanted you know we tried out um, like a more standard comic book coloring style with a little bit more rendering and then we transitioned into this flatter style with desaturated colors with high pops of chroma you know and so that's yeah. kind of what we settled on but it does you, you kind of play back and forth in the beginning and then you find you kind of get into a groove and you know what to do and you move on from there but every book is different too um, like on velvet okay. And pretty much with anything I do on Ed's books and with Sean Phillips, they just let me do whatever I want. Like, um, I started out a little bit more traditional. I mean, I say traditional, but I know my style of rendering is a little bit different. I asked uh, Jimmy about colorists earlier, Steve. What, what is it that you, uh, I mean, I'm assuming you like what Elizabeth Breitweiser does on Velvet. I do, yes. What is it that you like about the, the character that she brings to the colors she puts into your work? Um... I don't know. I can't even explain it. She's, uh, she's. It, it sort of seems at odds because I'm drawing this very realistic, uh, tightly rendered stuff, and she's. 
become gradually more and more impressionistic with the colors. So at first, you wouldn't think it would work, but it, it really does. Um, she's, just, she's doing things I'm not seeing anybody else do in comics. So I don't know, everybody should check it out for her work. It's right there. It's right there on your banner. At the at the table. No, oh, I'm, oh, oh, I'm just leaning into the mic. I'm not okay. looking at anything. I'm not. Well, and, watch. and here <laughs> behind the curtain, Elizabeth Brightweiser. Everybody, <laughs> a big round of applause. Uh, yeah, and I got some uh, trade paperbacks at the table too. If anybody wants, wants to come look at them. One of the things I, I love the most about it, uh, I've told her, is that it, it lends this kind of cinematography feel to things. Where, like you said, it, it goes a bit impressionistic, but. Um, you know, beyond just you know lighting sources and that sort of a thing, it's able to, to put some mood into it without going over your work too much to the point that you know it's it's not visible in in the uh, in the finished product. Yeah, and she's also um, she's also doing some storytelling things like directing the eye around the panel with uh, different highlights and light sources that are not necessarily there in the line art. You know, um, she's probably even more so than people realize uh, when reading the book, uh, how much she's bringing to it. So I couldn't be happier. Well, it comes from, I mean, you told me yesterday you have a painter's background, so it's coming yeah. from a, it's, it is yeah. coming from a painter's background. So like on, but they let me experiment and play. So like on uh, Sean Phillips on Fatel, I mean, I did more like just what I normally do. I just, you know, I'm, it's more like, yeah, I slick things and I render and, but the past few issues have really been playing with just rendering with light, which means not making selections and coloring outside the lines and experimenting with color and layering color as if you're working in light, you know? And so it's a looser, um, I don't want to say sloppier style, but it's a looser, more energetic, impressionistic feel than what it was. Like if you look at the very first issue of the fade out, it's a little bit different than what I'm doing now, which is looser, which I think complements Sean's style better because he uses big blocky brush strokes and it's really loose and energetic so it's kind of just trying to get into try to find something that works with the artist and when you're working grow. with a, collab a collaborative process like that is it within the artist's rights to uh, send something back with criticism oh yeah yeah I mean it's here's here's my thing and I, and I really appreciate everyone um kind of I mean there's big been a big movement towards you know sticking up for colorists and having our but the thing is it's still it's to me it's still my job to work with the art I have it's not my job to outshine the artist or it's my job to complement the artwork and so if the artist is not happy with it if the writer's not happy with it it is my job to make sure they're happy you know so that is my 100% my goal is to tell the story with color and to make the artist and the writer happy. So if they're not happy with something, I want them to tell me, you know. And so there's lots of times, especially like I said, early on in books, um, we were working out the kinks and so you get a lot more uh, corrections and feedback, you know. And then after you kind of get into a groove, you know, I like on Outcast and all my books, I really don't get corrections anymore. But in the beginning, like especially on Outcast, it was a whole new creative team, yeah. a style I've never worked in, on, in before. And Paul illustrates totally different than anyone. I mean, he gives me um, 
Photoshop files that are grayscale and you know and that have um, layers and layers and layers, which I've never worked on before. You know, so it just kind of takes a little bit back and forth. Does that make the process on that particular book uh, easier, or does it actually make it in a way more challenging? In the beginning, it was more challenging because I've never, I was, I've never worked with anything like that before. So it took me a while to figure out a process to, because um, it's a bit tricky to color grayscale sometimes because. If you know anything about color theory, like if you just render with white or black, things can get milky or things can get muddy. Yeah. And so, and gray is a value of, of black and white. And so, to keep things from looking muddy, you kind of have you have to colorize that that grayscale. And since Paul's giving me flat grayscale, that adds even more, you know. Le level of trying to figure out how to get that not to look murky and you know so now I've got a great process I'm really happy with and it actually makes it easier like I said Paul gives me guidelines so the beautiful thing what I really love about working on Outcast is we've we've landed on a style that has minimal rendering it still has you know texture and, and things like that I'll add in but for the most part we're keeping it with very subtle rendering and just some makeup and blush on the faces and things like that. So I get to spend my time focusing solely on color theory and the palettes and color psychology. And whereas these other books, part of my brain power and the time I have has to go towards rendering. You know, like on uh, C. Befting's work on velvet, it's so detailed, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of my time goes into the rendering of that. And so on Outcast, I just spend all of my time coming up with palettes I would have never had time or you know to, to experiment with and. As far as your own process, do you like to go ahead and complete an issue in full, or do you have to bounce back and forth between pages on different books? That depends on the deadline and how. And if the artist, I would love to be able to set up scenes. Uh, I would love to be able to work in scenes. So if there's like three-page scene that's outside, and then a, you know, like a five-page scene inside, and then in a hospital, you know, I would love to be able to set those all up. But unfortunately, I don't always have. Uh, I'm not always lucky enough to be able to have all the pages in. So it really depends on the book I'm working on, how fast the artist is. But uh, from my standpoint, I would love to have all of one scene so I can set that up and then go ahead and pick the, pick the palettes for all those pages and then render them up at one time. Well, I won't, I won't let your editors know, but on average, how long does it take you to color an entire issue? Yeah, well, it depends on the book. Like, Outcast is a book I can color fairly fast, so, you know, I can color an issue of Outcast under, in under a week, you know, if I have to. Um, Velvet takes me, like, twice as long, you know, because it's more detailed. And Sean Phillips, I feel like I've worked out um, a process with him. Yeah, so it's it just depends on the book and the, and and the artwork and the kind of rendering you have to do and the the fire under your butt, you know. <laughs> like if if it's like a super tight deadline, I may have no choice but to color like ten pages a day or more. You know? If I can horn in on John for just a sec, um, I, you know we we use a lot of cinema terms when we're talking about coloring and understanding what colors do in the first place and I wonder as you've gotten into doing more and more coloring work in comics have you found yourself 
sampling different movies and different cinematographers and, and finding an affinity even for specific cinematographers and the way that they cast light in different scenes and play with color, you know, knowing, of course, that there's color correction on top of the photography. Yeah. yeah, that's actually one thing I'm really interested in. I think if I ever changed careers, I would probably try to become a color grader for film. Because it's kind of, that job is like my dream job. Because my least favorite part of coloring is rendering. <laughs> I mean, it's just the most time-consuming. My favorite part is coming up with emotive color and telling a story with a, with color and creating a palette that evokes certain feelings and, you know, working with the lighting in that way. And with color grading, the renderings are already done. You have the image fully fleshed out, and then your job is to go in and create focus and to make sure the values are there so your eye can be led around the page. But, yeah, I'm constantly looking at film and uh, traditional fine artworks, uh, like Wes Anderson films, you know? Everything has this you know, te uh, Technicolor type feel to it. So, yeah, I'm always looking towards film. The other, the other film parallel is sort of this idea of, like, reaching a saturation point with CG, so to speak, with, like, yeah. you know, you reach, you get to this level where it's just, like, nobody wants to see just the special effects, and all that peaked probably, like, 15, 10 years ago, where it's just, like, enough with just constant CG noise, and it's, like, I feel like comics have kind of come around the same way in regards to, it's, like, you know, whatever whatever was happening is people were grabbing hold of the technology into the late 90s and into the 2000s, and it's, like, enough with lens flares and, like, exactly. everything else, you yes. know, cool your jets, you end up with stuff like Outcast or Velvet or some of the, or it's stuff Hollingsworth. I mean, Hollingsworth's been doing kind of his own thing for a long time, yeah. but I feel like even now, you know, he's been one of those colorists who's been like a name brand colorist where people exactly. know him. And it's like, and he's not somebody that has to render someone's, every aspect of someone's nose with a shine on the side exactly. and all this stuff that, that maybe the pencil and inker didn't even intend. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know I did the same thing when I started out because yeah. I was so afraid of disappointing the artists and not doing enough. And, you know, so I'd find myself zooming in like you said, with the digital technology, it gives you too much freedom. So you'll zoom in 500% on a nostril and spend 10 hours rendering it on a highlight no one will see or a trash can or something that someone will put a word balloon over later. Velvet Templeton has the best nostrils in comics. Thank you. Oh, finally someone noticed. We recognize fine art from what it is, honestly. So that's one thing I've been trying to do is, you know, I think keep it simple, stupid. You know, you just... You learn where you want your focus to go and let everything else go. Because if you look at how the human eye works, whatever your eyes focus on, and that your peripheral vision is fuzzed out, you know? So really that's your job is to create focus. That's where you put your details. And then everything else I kind of, you know, leave to the imagination. Because you don't want people focusing like on, you know, like a sock in the floor in the corner that you've spent hours rendering on. You want them focusing on whatever, wherever the action is, you know. So that's one thing that I've learned and had to grow and develop. And, um, yeah, I really, that's one reason I really respect um, flat color in comics. I love flat color in comics because you have to have really damn good color palettes. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Know? is like your, your foundation, and you talked about color theory, and it's like I've had a taste of that in art school. It's like your, your foundational strengths have to be so strong yeah. to have the confidence to go in and go, I know my palette's strong enough to not have to make somebody's armor shiny gold. You know, exactly. It can just that, be whatever it needs to be. That's what helps me get through deadlines because I'm a very, I am a detailed-oriented person. So if I'll, I'll get caught up in the detail of something if I'm not careful, and that's one thing I'm trying to teach myself. And uh, just learning 
to because if you have a good palette, then you don't need a whole lot of rendering. Yeah. I think a lot of earlier on in my career when I was you know still trying to figure things so out, I overcompensated with rendering to make up for my you know weakness and well. you know color theory. You know, or if something wasn't right in the palette, you know, I was picking two boring colors or something. So you'd over render to show how awesome you were. You know, and now it's kind of the opposite. If I have a, a, a badass palette, then I don't need all this crazy rendering that just muddles the art anyways. And the, from different, you know, from artist to artist, it's different. Some artists want need more rendering. Some you can leave flatter, you know. But that's the thing. Under a tight deadline, if I have a great palette, then I just put the details where I need to, and then you can move on and turn in the book. This will be the last question. We'll let you get back to. My last question. You can you finish it. Okay. So you mentioned Wes Anderson and you know crazy, you know Wes Anderson Technicolor version of things. Not that you don't have enough comics work as it is, but is there a style of illustration that you would really be interested in coloring, you know, playing with a color palette that you would get in something like a like a high fantasy book or something like that, is there a style of art that you haven't gotten to play with yet that would really interest you to, to try your hand at? It's actually really close to what my question was going to be, so I may I may dovetail mine with yours, which is, do it. Is there is there somebody out there, a penciler, who you would love to color? Oh man, you know what? Well, to answer your question first, is I, I've been so lucky to work with like the top of the top. You know, um, I got lucky to fall in line. And maybe it's just because of my style of work led other artists of the same style to ask for me, but immediately working at Marvel. I love more of a classic brush style, you know, so I love artists who work with a big mini brush and, you know, grayscale, and there's not a whole lot of colorists who know how to color grayscale. So, like, Gabe Hardman started asking for me, and the Butch guys, and the Steve Epting. Yeah, Gabe's stuff is just crazy. so awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm finally I'm working on a small project with him again. It's our first time back together since, like, Marvel, so I'm super excited about that. But I love that style of art, and so... I mean, I kind of, I feel bad saying it, but I'm working with, like, the per people that I dream. I remember when I first broke into comics, and I, I really didn't know a whole lot about the industry. I didn't know the artists. I didn't know the books. And so, you know, Mitch would introduce me to some artists, and there were gods in my mind. Steve Epting and Butch Guys. I remember early on, Mitch showed me their work, and I would just study it for hours. This is still when I was a school teacher. You know, I was teaching 7th through 12th grade art, and I would just be like, wow, these guys are like the ultimate. I mean, I can't even imagine working with them, you know, and then here I am working with them, and it just blows my mind, you know. So I feel lucky that early on in my career I was able to attach myself to artists in a certain style, more of like a, you know, kind of classical style, and um, and that's what I love to do. So I, ha I don't I don't feel comfortable like dropping that. There are tons of artists I would love to work with. I don't know if I feel comfortable dropping. Well, okay, so 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 we'll we'll revert to the safe zone yeah, of my question. <laughs> is, is there a style of, of narrative that you, that you yeah. I mean something with dragons or something in it? I don't know. Yeah, well, I th I think it would be oh, right now on Outcast. Uh, this is my first time to ever work in the horror genre, so I'm super excited about that. You can get really moody and bloody and you know and so that's that 
that is one goal that I kind of, or one check off the bucket list is working in that. And yeah. so I'm still experimenting, having fun with that. I'm looking forward to things ramping up and even more and outcast and getting really moody with the yeah, colors. Definitely. I think it would be fun to work on like a, like a, kind of a sci-fi book or like a space book or something, yeah. you know? Um, there's, there's this new like trend, rising yeah. trend in them. Like you've got, you've got the, the bitch planet version of sci-fi. Exactly. And you've got, you know, various other little things that are, are finally springing. Yeah. Out. But, you know, but maybe I'm kind of a boring colorist in a way too, but I really love, I, I really love a subtle nuanced color that allows me to add like uh, high key color in places. I don't like high key or, you know, saturated colors all over. I like, I like to be select with those and then complement it with things that aren't, you know, I don't use, like things Use simple like, touches to have a big effect. Yeah, exactly. So anything will let me do that. And uh, so in a way, I find myself liking books like more real life books than the superhero books. And yeah. I like real life things that you can kind of <laughs> pump up the mood on, you know, but still have, or still grounded in the color and not, you know, like superhero crazy, you know, super saturated RGB color, you know, on everything. So anything will allow me to do that. And that's, I'm having a lot of fun at Image working on those kind of real, in the real world books. Well, I hope that answers your question. It, it does. No, it absolutely does. I think I think this is the beginning. Like, John and I are going to start an, an Elizabeth Breitweiser Eisner campaign, like in the style of Oscar campaigns. Oh, man. Like, you need to be the next one anointed with the with the. the I don't know if I deserve it. No, you do. You really do. Thank well, you so thank much. thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for your time. John, this episode of Giant Size is brought to our wonderful listeners by IDW, and we're going to keep this short. A couple of things that we've talked about on the show before, uh, one of them in teasing a future appearance, actually the next episode appearance of Katie Cook, uh, the creator behind My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Trade paperback is out this week. Uh, she'll be on our next episode after this one, our Comic Palooza special. So uh, those of you who are maybe getting a young reader into comics... That's available out there for you now, and and my beloved Little Nemo Return to Slumberland is now collected in trade as of this week with um, with script by Eric Shanower and art by the IDW exclusive Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh, John, do you, do you think comics are a thing that, that young readers should get into, that people should be getting young readers into? Yes, because young readers make old readers just like me, <laughs> Grandpa Golson. Uh, like, reads funny books. Be like I remember when books. Image started. That was a long time ago, John. That was almost 20 years ago. Back during the first of seven Gulf Wars. Mm-hmm. IDW Publishing, thanks so much for bringing this episode of the show to our wonderful listeners. And up next, we've got Walt Simonson, and we're going to hear about his IDW book on the next episode of the show. In fact, he had no idea that they sponsored the show on the regular, uh, so he kind of accidentally uh, gave a combination... Um, I, I guess you would say integrated advert for his book uh, before I even had a chance to tell him, uh, hey, so uh, by the way, just as a disclaimer. Yeah, if you're going to get a if you're going to get a shill, uh, there's there's really no better shill than than Walt Simonson that I can think of off the top of my head. There. If you're going to get somebody, you know, somebody that can speak on behalf of IDW and say, hey, check these books out. I think uh, you know, Walt Simonson's not bad. <laughs> So this is something that you, you very specifically, I knew that you wanted me to ask. We discussed it, you know, if I can get Walt Simonson, what do you want me to ask him? And you were like, well, 
I had this thing with viral because I got really cranky about digital recoloring. And can you ask him about that? I asked him about it and I got quite the answer, quite mm-hmm. the involved answer. And I, God, like this guy, Walt Simonson should probably have his own monthly podcast where everybody just gets to hear Professor Simonson talk for an hour. I wish I knew enough about linguistics to know where his his lilt is from. Um, Asgard? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Is, that, is, is that what Asgardians should sound like? I, not, that's how I hear them now. Not Chris, Chris Hemsworth, throw that guy out with the trash. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, too. Uh, yeah. Get actors who can sound like Walt. That should all sound like, I guess, is that Midwestern? I don't know. It's I, so, uh, I have it's no so, idea. There's like a musical quality to it that I really <laughs> I really enjoy listening to him talk. Well, we, we are going to excerpt. Uh, I've got an entire hour that I spoke with Walt Simonson. He said he was going to give me 15 minutes. And, and I think, uh, I think he, he said he was going to give me 15 minutes at the beginning of the last hour of the convention on Sunday of a four-day show ending on Monday because he knows that he likes to talk and he knew that it would give him an opportunity to not have to sign boxes and boxes of stuff for people to go CGC grade uh, mm-hmm. for another hour. Um, at the very least. And, and I, um, I did, I did many days of prep for this thing. So I'm very, very proud of it. We are going to be releasing the whole audio of it in the artist edition feed, but in particular, uh, it, we, we have kind of ended up with this grand slam greatest hits all-star collection, um, of, of great creators talking about color and, um, John, how, how should, how, if we should, should we cue this up, uh, with Walt talking about digital recoloring? Should you fill the audience in on, on, on why you wanted me to needle this nice man with a magical lilt to his voice? Oh, no. I mean, I'll give it a little bit of setup is basically I had never seen, um, I probably had seen recoloring before. I had never seen such extensive recoloring as I had seen on uh, Marvel's reprint of Simonson's Thor run when they collected it into the giant uh, Mighty Thor omnibus. Um, And the stuff looks pretty modern. I I actually think that a lot of older stuff uh, could probably benefit from uh, that style of digital recoloring where it really makes it look like uh, quote-unquote new comics. Um, but I'll get into my specifics uh, after after the Simonson piece. Ultimately decided to apply to art school just to see. I didn't, My two interests were dinosaurs and drawing. And I didn't have any other, I didn't have any way of making a living doing dinosaurs. I wasn't sure about drawing either, but it was my only other interest. So I applied to the Rhode Island School of Design. I was accepted there as a, even though I had a degree, I was accepted as a transfer student. So I went into RISD as a sophomore. I spent three years at RISD. And while I was at RISD, I got really interested. I read fewer comics. I read a lot still, but I got really interested in actually drawing them and telling stories visually. And so by the time I graduated from RISD three years later, I took a second degree as a, a bachelor's as an undergraduate, as a BFA, and uh, I had done a comic, a 50 or 70 page comic, something like that, of a group, uh, my own book, my own creation called Star Slammers, which was about a group of space mercenaries. On the Epic imprint, recently remastered. Recently remastered from, uh, yeah, well this is before Epic, this was like stuff that came out as Ashcan editions from a science fiction club. Oh, so, in, the, so in, there, this is like so 70. There was, a, there, was this, a pre, there was a pre-Epic edition. Oh yeah, this is this. before I was in comics. This was like 70, 71, 72. Uh, they came out as Ashcan editions for a science fiction club bidding for the World Science Fiction Con uh, in 74. Uh, the story was kind of geared around that. Uh, we won the bid, so maybe the, it must have worked. 
But, uh, and then recently, IDW has gone back and put out a complete Slammers collection, both of the graphic novel from Marvel from the early 80s, the miniseries from Malibu and Dark Horse from the early 90s, and the college work I did at art school, the complete story, in what's in the complete, it's called the complete Slam, Star Slammers collection, or it's called the Star Slammers collection, I guess. Came out a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it really contains pretty much all the Star Slammers material I've done to date. And the, the miniseries, the color was remastered. It was redone by Leno Grady. He did a really lovely job, so I'm, I couldn't be more pleased. Directly on the subject of recoloring and uh, mm -hmm. remastering and so on and so forth, uh, there's a great deal of your work that has gone through some some uh, some remastering, some recoloring, um, some reworking in you know new recently released collections and so on. And one of the uh, arguments that I see exploding all over the internet, like arguments <laughs> always do, that's what the internet's for, really. It is really is about oh well you know how dare they recolor this? He's pro there's no way that he likes this and there's no way that he likes that and he must hate this what 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 is your what is your actual perspective on the work of yours that's been recolored retouched reworked on well my rec the recoloring I've had it hasn't been everything some stuff like the Orion collection that came out the uh, from DC recently the Orion omnibus was not recolored uh, the Thor all of the Thor material was recolored by Marvel um, and uh, the Star Slammer is that this miniseries in the collection was recolored mm -hmm. and the thing about that is that uh, I mean, it's not an easy, you know, it's an aesthetic choice. It's not an easy choice. There are a lot of factors, many of which I don't know that comic fans think about. They might. But when comics were done, when I did Thor a million years ago, it was printed on newspaper, newsprint on the kind of the cheapest paper you could imagine. The cheapest paper that run through the press and not tear. And cheapest ink. And cheapest ink. And because of the way it was done, there were a, effectively 30 to 35 colors at that time that you could use in the comics. And that covered everything, that covered everything. It covered hue, saturation, and value. Um, and that's all you had. It was really hard to screw a job up with that those limited colors. It could still be done, or at least could be made to look worse. And it could be made to look quite good. There were colors who were really good using even that very simple system. But that's all there were. On the other hand, because it was on newsprint, the blacks and the line work in the art all, almost invariably became gray or dropped out to some extent. Mm -hmm. There's a when you look at the originals from back then, look at the printed version. It's astounding how much of the artist's work, the actual original page work, is not present. So, recoloring aside, with modern printing, and not just on my work, but a lot of work that's out there on better paper with better printing, a ton of what artists have done is suddenly visible. I never see that said in the web. I don't follow these discussions really carefully. I've never well, seen, you shouldn't. <laughs> well, I've never seen anybody. Yeah. I mean, I've seen things, you know, grousing about my stuff yeah. or, or people going, oh, no, it looked good. No, it looked terrible, whatever. Yeah. But I've never seen anybody talking about the fact that suddenly there's line work visible you've never seen before. The blacks are actually solid as they are on the actual artwork. So on that aspect, I'm all for, you know, the reprints because they really bring to life art that you just didn't see. At the same time, because computer colors, you have you know millions of colors, which is really more than the human eye can see, but however many it is. Yeah, I'm sure there's, there's a shrimp somewhere on the bottom of the Marianas Trench that can see it. Maybe so, but humans can see a lot of color. Yeah. And because there's so much color available now, now with computers, it is easy to screw up jobs in a way that was never possible before. So there are aesthetic choices to be made. When people say, oh, I wish I cited the old coloring, I understand liking the old flat color. It's the stuff you're used to. It does showcase the art in a way. Um, the colorist back then was way less important in the way the stuff looked, but there's so much missing. It's like having missing information in some JPEG you've reopened a billion times and stuff's all dropped out over time so that 
you have an opportunity to see work you've never in a way you've never seen it before. That doesn't mean it's going to happen every time. Coloring has become it's an art. I mean, it always was an art, mm -hmm. but when you only have 35 colors, it's a simpler art. Now with Photoshop, it's a much more complicated art and a much more refined art. So in the case of the Thor Omnibus, Steve Olaf did the coloring on that. Steve was uh, for Ole Optics. He had, he had one of the very first, if not the very first, computer coloring company back when computers were just coming in. Mm -hmm. And he goes back to when the simple color was still being done. That means he's got a foot in both camps. He understands what coloring looked like back 30 years ago. He also understands computer color now. And one of the things about the Thor recoloring I'm very pleased about is that he tried and succeeded, I thought, in finding some middle ground between the way the coloring used to look and the way coloring looks now. There's not a lot of gradation, some gradation. There's not a lot of rendering of form in the color. Um, the trick with rendering a form is if you're going to render the form, you damn well better know what the drawing is like. Um, Steve gets that. He kept it kind of simple rather than rendering to kind of echo the old stuff. At the same time, you can see work of mine in the omnibus you never saw in the old print, in the old printings. And the color is richer. It's on this, of course, also stuff's on better paper. That means if you try to get the old flat color, you would have to readjust the value and the saturation of those colors in order to try and make it look something like the old color, which it would not. It would still be brighter. And that's going to be different. And whether it's just going to be flat that's a different, that's another aesthetic question. But I thought Steve did a remarkably fine job. And I will say, I looked at every page of that job as it came through and approved it. We discussed stuff, we threw some stuff out. There was, he used a lot of extra people to help because he couldn't get everything done. It was over a thousand, maybe over 1,100 pages. So he used a lot of people to help out, old Ole Optics guys, new colorists. Some of them worked out really well, some of them did not. Some of them were so caught up in the rendering of my modern color, they couldn't go back and simplify out, and Steve had to go back and either simplify the stuff or he simply couldn't use them. And there were some guys who really got it and really did beautiful work. So, he, but then Steve was a guy who oversaw everything and kind of held everything together, brought it all together aesthetically. So overall, I'm really pleased the way the Thor coloring was done, and I really did approve it all the way along. We did a lot of work on that book to try and make it come out the way it did. We, we even had a few places where we did a little, we didn't touch up the art anywhere, but there were places where, for example, early on especially, I had open balloons. I like balloons that are open to the margins. Not everywhere, just occasionally, because I think it gives a nice visual effect. Mm -hmm. And but when I was first learning how to do that, and I hadn't really thought about it, Mike Carlin brought me up short on that. <laughs> I would have a balloon at the bottom of a panel open to the gutter, and then I have a balloon right below it, and the top of the bottom, next panel down, open to the gutter, and the two balloons would be abutting each other, and you could read right through the two balloons, because <laughs> and even there was a little gap there, there wasn't much of a gap. And so there were several balloons, especially early on, where Steve and I talked about it, he would either move the type digitally or reduce it like by 5%, not enough to be noticeable, but enough to move it down or move it up and then complete a line, one of the two lines would be filled in. So we made several adjustments like that to try to make that stuff work. Um, the, there were several things done like that throughout the course of that book. We were very careful about it, and we did a lot of work to try and make it. I mean, I, I figure, how many more times is Thor going to come out in my lifetime in a complete collection, other than, say, reprint? Yeah. They're not going to go back and recolor it a second time. They're not going to do whatever they're going to do. And so I wanted that book to look as good as it could, because I figured that's kind of the permanent record for that, that work. And that's what we tried to do. And I thought Steve did a remarkably good job. And, Remarkably wonderful job, really, and I'm I'm very pleased the way it came out. So I do understand the arguments pro and con, mm -hmm. um, but it's like any aesthetic choice. 
there are a lot of options, and, uh, and some of them like not getting the work printed properly or having grayed blacks. Uh, I saw one people, one person who were grousing about the splash page for the fourth issue, about how Beta Ray Bill was colored a bit differently you know, on, on Thor's chariot. And, and somebody did note, I didn't have to get in there, and I did not get into the discussion. I don't, I mostly, I really don't do You're that. You're busy over here. I'm busy. I've got to get I've got the artwork done. <laughs> but somebody pointed out that the coloring in the original one, not only was it, it was flat, yes, but it also miscolored his entire leg and put a knee where there was no knee or something along those lines. And the recoloring got it right. So maybe the coloring was different, but there was a good reason for it. So that's just the way it was. Well, the way you describe it, it, it reminds me of the very precise artistry in, in something like film restoration. Uh, when you look at something like the restoration of the Red Shoes, a, a three-strip Technicolor movie that in its original theatrical presentation they had three different strips that weren't perfectly aligned would be malformed you know you get to see yep. a lot more of what was really intended in the first place along that same line of thinking is there other work of yours that you would like to see you know it, not as gargantuan of a process probably as, as doing all the Thor stuff but there is a, is there other stuff beyond Star Slammers that you'd like to see given that additional pass with the better techniques that are available the better technology that's available the better paper to put the stuff on oh sure I mean I I, you know, I would. I mean, there's stuff, there, there's stuff that I've done that I would. I mean, I'd like to see, you know, the FF or something like that. Or, I mean, I would, I would kind of like to have seen Orion recolored. If they, I mean, I understand why it wasn't done, but it's on better paper and it printed better. So a lot of the line work that was not mm -hmm. visible before is still there through the color as it exists. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not nuts about whether they do that. I mean, I, I will say one thing. This is not about color, but one of the things I'm really delighted about. Are the artist editions that are coming out from IDW and for, for my case from Titan and from Dark Horse? And as a disclaimer, I should mention IDW sponsors this podcast on a regular basis. Ooh, so I'm glad you put, you're, so so. And I didn't know that. So I, you, you is, had no idea. I surprised is, Louise. The this other is day news too. to me. <laughs> but I have to say that that in a way that's the stuff Scott, I'm really Scott delighted. Scott I mean, he really does deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, he, that stuff's <laughs> great, and I really like it because it really gives a much wider audience a chance to see kind of what the raw artwork looks like that an artist hands in and then goes through production and goes through coloring and goes through lettering corrections and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thrilled by it. The one thing I did do on the Star Slammers collection, I didn't really change the art. I'm not I'm not big on changing the art in, in you know adding stuff or redrawing yeah. stuff. I understand some, have, why some artists have done it. I do get it. I meant to do um, this in the background. Or that something kind of like that. I haven't done it. I, I kind of feel, well, for two things, two reasons. One is I don't draw the way I drew 30 years ago. I would be very hard pressed to do a drawing now that would fit s seamlessly into work I did 30 years back. That would just be tough. And also, 30 years ago, I gotta say, on whatever work it is, I'm just, this is hypothetical, I did the best work I could. I worked, I worked pretty hard in all the stuff I turn out, and I'm not sure I wanna go back and second guess the artist I was in 1980 or 19, whatever it was. That said, on the Star Slammers, on the, on the Star Slammers complete collection, in the, in the RISD work, which is printed in the back of the book, um, there's a, I was a fledged, I'd never written comics before, I was a fledging writer. There's a pretty big caption on the first page. And I let it, this was work that I, it, it was just in black and white. So I wrote it, I penciled it, I lettered it, I inked it. And I discovered after it come out that in that first caption is, as far as I know, the only typo in that all 50 or 60 page epic. <laughs> it was the only damn typo. <laughs> I left out the word the. It wasn't a typo, it wasn't misspelling. I left out the word the. And so I debated about it in the collection, but honestly, the collection is not meant to be an artist edition of the work. It's kind of cleaned up a little bit, just cleaned up in the computer to clean it, make it print well. And I debated about it, talked to Scott about it, thought about it, and in the end, I made that correction in the art, it's in that book. So <laughs> if there's ever an artist edition, 
I might still make that correction, but I don't know. I may not. I might leave it out. I had a little pencil V above it, which I erased once I kind of did digitally and cleaned it up. But uh, but that was the that's the only change in that stuff I made. So John, regale us, regale us with with uh, with what brought you to this subject. So I think the thing that uh, a lot of people, I think, well, the IO9 piece didn't make clear to people was that I was not anti digital coloring. I like it sometimes and sometimes I don't. My broader point was that in the collaborative process, those original colorists are they're they're part of the team. And my deal was the excision and dismissal of those team members uh, seemed it was troubling to me. And my solution was basically the thought that if the if the original colorist can be brought in and they're still working and they're still up to date in the field and still uh, you know using modern tech, that in that situation it would be nice if they would go back to them for those recoloring jobs and say, hey, you colored this originally. Would you like a second crack? If that doesn't happen, which I, which I don't expect it to happen in every case, and certainly in a case like Simonson's, it's almost you're looking at something that's a little more auteur level where he's writing and drawing. And so maybe he should have more control over the actual palette than he had back in the 80s. But even in that case, I feel like acknowledgments should be made. And my deal is like anything that gets recolored, I feel like should have some sort of credit to the original colorist, even if their work doesn't necessarily appear, some nod that, uh, well, you know, I think I, I wrote like a little creed that was basically, uh, this work has been recolored from, uh, the original work of so-and-so colorist while we appreciate their contribution, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I think a nod to their, to their place in the history of the title is, is I think it's worthwhile. I don't think I think we're in a place now, especially as we're talking about colorists getting credited on books and being like a really important part of the team. It's like we kind of can't say both things out of our mouth. We kind of can't start looking at colorists in a different way and going, colorists are as important as anyone else. And at the same time, go, let's never mention who colored this back in the day. It's sort of like, I, I just feel like that's really at odds. Those two philosophies are really at odds with each other. And, and my deal is, you know, like any art, I'm going to like some of it. I'm going to not like some of it. Some of it's going to be misguided. Some of it's not. I get that printing wasn't what it could have been and, and the limitations and things like that. There's a lot of books from the late 80s in Marvel, and I, I, they, I can't remember the name of the process, but they changed their printing process. And for about three years at the end of the 80s, all of Marvel's books look yellow and pink. Like so, I get I get this like technology allowing you to recolor. I just my deal is that that I want to think of colorists as artists, and if they are artists, then I I think their contribution is worth mentioning. And that's that's what it comes down to for me. It's not necessarily a lot of anti digital coloring people were very much like yeah, bro, like high five, and I was sort of like, well, it's not really the point I'm making. Like I'm not. I'm not trying to say that this stuff is untouchable because I don't think it is untouchable. I actually think the mighty Thor omnibus is is pretty impressive looking. I like to get it out and show sadly, people because sadly out of print now. It doesn't look like something f- from the '80s. It looks like something that was printed last week, and that's really really cool. Uh, so so I am I am for it in a general sense, but I'm also for acknowledging the past and acknowledging uh, the people that were part of the process. 
Well, John, uh, this this has been a hell of a truly giant size action packed episode. Um, to to go back to our uh, our our focus of praise in particular for this episode, uh, Elizabeth Brightweiser. Is there um, is there a a particular uh, panel, a particular book, a particular issue uh, that that jumps out in your mind that that particularly shows off her talent with light and casting a scene as you this- put it earlier. The spot that stopped me in my tracks where I went back to look at the credits page to see who colored the book was in Velvet Number 1. It's not a series that I've kept up with. I thought I think it's good. I just, you know, you ain't got all the money for every book ever. So, um, But there was a like a two-page sequence, maybe three or four pages into Velvet, that takes place outside of a party, I think on a patio, uh, like, a, like a, a, you know, a balcony, like a deck. And it's at night. And the lighting in that scene was so strong that I stopped reading the book and went back to see who did it. And uh, and that's really, to me, like that was the moment where I was like, oh, I know who this person is now. And I talked to you about it at the time. And you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've had her on the show. She's great. you know. And you mentioned other stuff she'd done that I didn't even realize. But that particular uh, two-page two page layout was was the moment where I had to know who that creator was. Well, and, and I think... Uh that particular extra extra polish extra aspect to the work is big reason why none of the velvet creators can tell us what's happening with it potentially being adapted in other media um but i i i would be shocked if in particular her contribution to the book were not an enormous part of why you know in the hands of studio executives it it was the kind of thing that they went give me this well, yes, please give me this. Um, John? Yes. People can find you on Twitter, I understand it, at mm-hmm. Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N? At Golson, yes. Guttersandpanels.com? Mm-hmm. At Gutters Panels. On Twitter. People can find me on Twitter at Moiseschew, M-O-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-U. Follow the network at E-S-N-F-M. And you can find show notes for this episode of the show by going to esn.fm slash giant size slash 37. And if uh, by the time this episode posts, if if one of our listeners has not already found the error on the back of Warlock by Jim Starlin, the complete collection, we are still offering a bounty for the listener who would ordinarily get a no prize writing into a comic book. uh, But by writing into us or uh, mentioning us on Twitter and telling us what that error is. Uh, we we will give them an actual prize, actual comic book prizery. Isn't that right, John? That is correct. Uh, gigantic hearty thanks to this week's special guests, Neil Adams, Steve Epting, Walt Simonson, and, of course, our guest of honor, uh, whose work we have uh, wanted to shine a particular spotlight on for some time, Elizabeth Betty Brightweiser. Uh, John, do you, do you feel like we got more to talk about when, when it comes to color? Do you think we've got more comic book color? Oh, man, episodes? there's a lot of colorists I hope we get the chance to speak to. That's the mm. thing. You don't see a lot of colorists doing the uh, the rounds at the cons. Um, I can't get Jordy to do uh, Jordy Belair to, to do one of these. She, every time I ask her, she's like, oh, ask Declan. And I said, well, he's not a colorist. I want to talk to you. She's like, oh, I don't really do those. Okay. Yeah. We we gotta we gotta get them out from from the shadows. Yeah, you know, there's other people too, like these unsung heroes of comics. I would really like to. Oh, we're gonna I, do lettering, man. Because yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I like 
like bucket list goal for the show if if i get tom Warzakowski, mm-hmm. uh i'm dude there i'm good i think That's... he's a good one you know talking about simonson i always think of uh, john workman mm-hmm. who to me is just like goes hand in hand with simonson's art and then the one to me that's so mysterious is uh is janice chang uh who's whose lettering is so notes. distinctive I'm and i'm notes. like uh you know when i see janice chang lettering I'm, i recognize it immediately and we should get Comicraft. uh actually back on colorists uh and speaking of walt simonson we should get laura martin takes a lot of people to make a comic book it really does it is it is not a microsoft paint paint bucket uh, or sometimes it done. takes one person to make a comic book. It just depends sometimes. on the comic. Sometimes. Depends on the comic. Depends on exactly how much they want to wreck their wrists. Uh, John, next episode of the show, our Comic Palooza special. Are people going to hear more from Walt Simonson? Does he have more to say? Yeah, I guess we'll hear a little bit from him. But more importantly, and I'm actually, I was actually much more, I was like, look, if I don't get Walt, whatever, fine. But I desperately wanted to get time to chat with Louise Simonson. Uh, and Walt is really, honestly, uh, her biggest fan on the planet and puts things so articulately in, in giving her credit that I do not feel like she properly gets for really, honestly, affecting and transforming comic book storytelling, uh, especially in the 80s as she got into uh, writing in addition to editing. Um, but the, the showrunners of comics are the editors and they do not get their due. She is, uh, you know, to put it in perspective for listeners, she's the second most important X-Men writer of the 1980s. She's probably the second most important Superman writer of the 1990s. And that doesn't necessarily, I'm not to put her in second place, but you have these names that people associate like Chris Claremont or Dan Jurgens. But you had other X-Men books and you had other Superman books and there had to be support systems and people building those universes. And there's, there's Louise Simonson's contribution to the big two over the the past few decades. Uh, To me, she's a really underestimated, underrated creator. I have a feeling that we're going to do our Louise Simonson spotlight episode before we get around to Walt. Um, Just because we, you don't, you don't hear enough about her period. End of story doing prep. I was shocked at how few people really did any sort of reasonable prep before talking to her. Um, because, you know, the, the, the rankings in terms of importance of writers, I, I, I'll add some more context along the lines of I think what you were getting at. Um, it isn't to in any way lessen her contribution, but in terms of who is, uh, to, to use an example recently uh, from the New 52, you and I would go on and on about this great Batman and Robin book written by Peter Tomasi, that really shored up the Batman line in and of itself. The mm-hmm. Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo core Batman title, awesome and great, but what made the Bat family have the kind of foundation that it did was that auxiliary book that was telling different kinds of stories than they could do in the main book. Um, and I would say arguably, reconsidering the way that, you know, I guess rankings and importance, I I would say that on the whole, taking away just from being on the writer credit, but in terms of influence on a particular line, keeping a creator on a book, uh, you know, running interference between upper editorial and a creator that, you know, prior to working with Louise, you know, was was uh, for whatever reason. And you'll hear her talk about it, um, you know, labeled problematic or difficult to work with or something. But that she 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 found to be like, you know, taming a, a house cat. 
um, they worked great with her where other people, you know, found them difficult to work with. And maybe if Louise hadn't come in for the, the last part of the Phoenix, the dark Phoenix saga, maybe Chris Claremont wouldn't have still been on the X books for as long as he was after that. Um, the, the influence of a particular creator is something that is beyond just the credits they ended up with, but the credits that they allowed other people to retain by being in their corner, by fighting for them and going to bat for them with editorial. And that, that for me is why if you're talking about just the core credit, yes, you know, uh, John Byrne and Chris Claremont, massive, huge influence on the X-Men universe and, and arguably the writers who, who built it into the thing that it would become through the animated series in the 90s, through the movies and all that kind of stuff. Yes, very much so. Uh, Len Wein, too. But when it comes to the, the person guarding the castle, so to speak, um, and, 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 and keeping watch and, you know, uh, providing strategy and that sort of thing, I'm going crazy with metaphors and analogies these days. I don't know what my deal is. I, I feel like there is no way that the people who commonly get the most credit for this stuff did the work that they did without Louise Simonson in the equation, period. I just, you know, that's, that's, that's where I stand. That's where I understand that you stand. If I may speak for you, am I allowed, uh, Senator Golson? Sure. Oh, I'm so excited. And in addition to, to Louise Simonson, we've got uh, Peter David talking about internet outrage syndrome, uh, rather enthusiastically. Um, and he said it all on the record and uh, wanted it said, so it's it's in there. It's in the episode. Uh, m- much more, um, I guess you would say, um, uh, uh, fun and warm and fuzzy uh, is uh, is my chat with uh, Katie Cook. Um, my Little Pony Friendship is Magic is, is what a lot of people associate her with, and, and I, I wanted to speak with her because I think she is a very important creator in the here and now that is affecting a generation to come, especially of... Uh, young girls who, you know, maybe if there weren't that My Little Pony book and, you know, a, 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 a woman like her doing that book, maybe they wouldn't perceive doing comic books as a job that they can do when they're older. And, um, John, can I tell you something, brother? Go ahead. I somehow ended up interviewing the most decorated champion in WCW history. Booker you mean five-time, 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 five-time champion? The, Correct. The, the creator of the Spinaroonie? The creator of G.I. Bro. Which is now a comic book. Yes, I, there, there will in fact be a few minutes Wait. <laughs> talking with Booker T about uh, his new comic book, G.I. Bro. I'm serious. I'm, I, I couldn't make this up if I tried, John. Well, I don't want to use all my words here. I'll use them for the I'll use them on the next episode or I will run out of words in this. And then the next the next episode will have no intro or outro because I will have said everything I could possibly say about Booker T. Now, are you really excited about that comic will lose a special, John? You know, why doesn't he tell people he's writing a comic Booker T? Oh, Why doesn't he just like adopt that? Well, and, like, yeah, thanks everybody it. for listening. Thanks everybody for listening. It's been great. This has been a wonderful episode. Episode thirty-seven. ESN.fm slash giant size slash thirty-seven. John, thank you so much once again for making this show what it can be. Yeah.
Thank you.